You're listening to West Coast Water Justice, where we talk about water in the Western United States. I'm your host, Natalie Kilmer. All right, so yeah, I'll just have you share your name and your titles, and then we'll get started. Uh, this is Glenn Spain. I'm the Northwest Regional Director for the Pacific Coast Federation of Fishermen's Association, PCFFA. And we are the largest organization of commercial fishing families on the West Coast. So when you say fishing families, I'm curious, so not for industrial fishing or anything like that? No, we're primarily mom and pop family-owned boat operations. They can have a substantial investment, but we're not big factory farmers. We're community-based. We're primarily mid-sized, and a lot of our people are, of course, salmon-dependent because salmon has historically been the best fishery until recent years in the West Coast. That's changed, unfortunately, for the worse. What is the region geographically? We're based in the United States. We don't have strong membership in Alaska, but we have member organizations that are affiliated with us in Alaska. And then most of every port has a port association or a fisherman's group association, and those become members of PCFFA. It is a federation of 17 different port associations, vessel owner associations like the crab boat vessel owners, or marketing associations. And so it covers a broad spectrum of every fishery in the West Coast. Okay, so like even down to San Diego and maybe Hawaii? Not so much Hawaii. Hawaii is a little farther away. (laughs) Okay. Got it. Thanks for explaining that. Okay, so for today, if you can tell us a little bit about the dam's removal process on the Klamath and how we got here. Let me give you a little bit of background and context. We've been building dams for two or three centuries. There are now something like 85,000 dams in the United States. Many of them no longer serve any function. Quite a number of them are safety hazards. They've been silted up, and so they no longer store water. They're safety hazards. Many dams are obsolete, and the Klamath is among that group that is essentially 19th century technology and is now coming up against the engineered lifespan of what they were designed to exist for. They also, like many other dams elsewhere, need either to be relicensed or removed because they're obsolete in terms of modern standards, environmental standards, and in terms of modern engineering standards. Of those 85,000 dams in the country, by the way, that's more than one dam built for every day since the signing of the Declaration of Independence and then a few thousand left over. No one gave much thought what to do when they exceed their engineered lifespan, or what to do when they're no longer necessary, or what to do with a dam that is in place, blocks a stream, but serves no no function. A great number of the dams are of that category, and you could classify the Klamath dams in that category too, because they're very small dams, relatively speaking, in terms of their hydropower. They don't produce much power. They don't store water. They don't provide any irrigation. All the irrigation in the climate irrigation project are above the dams hydrologically, not below them. The only thing they do is generate a very small amount of power. And their second 50-year license expired in 2006. So the company is in this conundrum. What do they do with these old dams that are not particularly valuable that will cost a great deal of money to fix up to modern standards, 
and the obvious solution is take them down. That, in fact, is the solution that the company came to, and that is, in fact, what was proposed to the public agency that protects customers of utility companies, the Public Utilities Commissions, and the Public Utilities Commissions also concluded, as did the company, that it's going to be far cheaper for Pacific Core company customers to take them down and replace their power somewhere else in the six-state grid than it is to patch them up yet again after more than 100 years of operation to try to continue their failing lifespan. To give you a little bit of, of, of context in terms of what kind of power they produce, they produce on the average of about 82 megawatts of power over the last 50 years of their license. That's what they average. The reason it's not full generation is that you can't run a dam 24-7 all through the year. Sometimes there's more water. Sometimes there's less water. Sometimes there's more need for the power, and there's less need for the power. There's less need, for instance, in the summer. In the winter, there's more need for power, but there's also power being generated all over the grid. So the power that they generate isn't necessarily needed all the times of the year. So they cannot really run 24-7, 12 months out of the year. And 82 megawatts sounds like a lot. You can figure out how many thousands of homes that will power, but your average typical modern power plant would be 1,000 megawatts or more something like almost 15 times more power than the dams all combined generate. And that's just one power plant. So the prospect of replacing that power is for a company the size of Pacific Core, one of the prime public utilities in the west of the U.S., a very small issue. It's less than 2% of the total generation capacity of the whole company. So why is it taking so long if it was expiring in 2006? Well, the license expired, but the license is through the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission. That's the federal agency that licenses hydropower dams. And once the dam license expires, the company has to do one of two things. Either they relicense them, which means they have to meet modern standards, or they decommission and remove them. That is, in fact, the choice of the company at this point and their business decision based on the fact that the estimated cost of relicensing would be so high that it would be very expensive power for a very small amount of power as compared to renewables and other things elsewhere in the grid. Keep in mind that when these dams were built 100 years ago, they provided power for Klamath Falls. It was the only source of power for Klamath Falls. Now, Klamath Falls, if you're sitting there in Klamath Falls, you're getting power from Everywhere in six states, anywhere that Pacific Core operates and generates power, it can ship power from one point to another throughout its grid. That's very typical these days. The fact that these dams served provide a power for one small nearby town no longer is relevant. That town gets power from everywhere. The issue for Pacific Core is what do you do? Okay, well, if originally they wanted to relicense then the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission concluded that relicensing was not a practical solution, given that it would run the dams at a $20 million loss after all of the fix that needed to be done, the retrofitting that would have to be done. That would cost customers about $500 million. The 
dam removal agreement caps the cost to customers at $200 million, which is spread over two states. The rate base is spread over two states. So that amounts to about $2.40 per customer per month for 10 years. And that was charged and collected and is sitting in a trust account managed by the Public Utility Commission. And that is slated for dam removal. So from the viewpoint of the company, they couldn't justify relicensing a very expensive dam to produce a very small amount of power and run at a loss. So finally, they came around to the same position that we had been urging them, and that is that they are in favor of dam commissioning and removal. That was approved by the Public Utilities Commissions of both California and Oregon as the best option. Okay, so basically what you're spelling out is just even for the business, it's a loser. It would lose money if it were relicensed. That was the conclusion that FERC itself came to. And they said, okay, you still want to do it? And the company said no at that point. Now, the question is, well, the license expired at, in 2006. Why is it still running? Well, it gets a one-year temporary extension more or less automatically while its application is pending. FERC doesn't want to just shut somebody down. They want a transition. So they get a sort of a rubber stamp approval to continue the current operation while they're moving toward one of two options. In this case, it will be dam removal. Can you tell us a little bit about who are the other players? Well, there are a lot of different agencies. There's two states because the dams actually are in an area that spans both states. That means the state environmental laws, which are different than each state, by the way. And so you have to consider how to reconcile those differences as well. You have the federal agencies because there are tribes in the lower basin, tribes in the upper basin. The federal government is the trustee designated by the Constitution to protect the interests of the tribes. Then you have the state we mentioned the state agencies, but there are several. California, for instance, there are the water quality agencies, the electrical power agencies, the California Energy Commission. There are various other groups that get involved in it one way or the other. Then you have all these federal agencies because there's Forest Service land, there's BLM land there. Those are two different federal agencies. Then there's, of course, the fisheries impacts, and that puts that in the National Marine Fisheries Service uh, ballpark, and for inland fish in river, non-anadromous fish that don't go out to sea, they're under the jurisdiction of the U.S. Forest Service. So you have all these agencies, all this checkerboard land, all of these conflicting mandates. And then, of course, you have two counties, Klamath County, where one dam is, and then Siskiyou County in California, where three of the four dams are. So all of this has to play together in some fashion, and it's not an easy task to pull all those people together on a unified program. And there's dissent. I mean, there are some groups that oppose dam removal, like uh, Siskiyou County. Why are they against it? Siskiyou County uh, fears that their revenue will suffer. Some of the land the Civic Corps has in Siskiyou County pay taxes, and if those lands are essentially transferred to the state, they or off the tax rolls. That's a, a, a legitimate concern. Another concern was the county seat, which is Wairika, 
gets its water supply from a spring through a pipe that goes under the Iron Gate Reservoir. So if the reservoir disappears, their pipe is exposed, and it's not really functional for that. It's not really designed to be up in the air. So the city of Wairika had a very legitimate concern, which we did address very carefully, because the city of Wairika and the county of Siskiyou had their people at the table negotiating throughout this whole deal. They were out looking for their interest. So the city of Wairika will be given a new water supply conduit from a different source, basically a brand new several million dollar reconstruction of their current drinking water system. So it's no longer basically through a reservoir, it comes through a tunnel system, basically redesigned and rebuilt. So that's a plus for Wairika. They would otherwise eventually have to replace that and it would cost them millions of dollars. And there are homeowners around some of the reservoirs who have problems with the reservoir disappearing. Their view shed, they feel, will be damaged. They feel that their property values will be damaged. So one of the things that is being done in terms of mitigation, just like we're mitigating Wairika's concern, is we're mitigating the concern of the landowners by doing what we can to restore green belts around the lakes as they shrink down into the river system, put in recreational boating ramps, putting in things basically that make that area more valuable for the landowners who live there, not less so. So we're getting into what the process is and what mitigations are being done, but this is all part of it. And I happen to sit on the board of directors of the Klamath River Renewal Corporation, which is the legal entity that is responsible for dam removal. So I speak to some of those issues as well. But that's where we are. And of course, you can't go through a project which requires federal approval without an environmental impacts analysis. We did that once already with respect to the original plan. That included a restoration plan, too, which was sort of part of it, but that never was approved by Congress. So we're now moving forward solely with dam removal with some mitigation. And that's going through the National Environmental Policy Act, NEPA, process right now. We had the set of public hearings. Then there'll be a draft environmental impact statement out for public comment, then a final and then it goes back to FERC for approval early to middle next year. Keep in mind that the original agreement with the company to remove the dams was negotiated over 10 years, but it was signed in 2010. So we're already dealing with over 10 years of putting all the pieces together, making sure all the funding was together, getting all the approvals, getting all the permits getting the contractors signed on. We now have that. We have the budget fixed in place. We have a guaranteed maximum price, so there won't be any overruns. We have all of that in place now. So all the pieces are there. The last major step is the permitting process through the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission, and we're in the middle of that process now. Wow. Okay. That's pretty amazing. I personally, by the way, and through Pacific Coast Federation of Fishermen's Association who've been working on this issue since the mid-80s. In the mid-80s, we wound up with our first major fishery closure that was triggered by low salmon runs. Why this matters is that our West Coast fishery is managed on the basis of what's called weak stock management. 
the weakest stocks usually been the Klamath. When the fish intermingle, and they do, they migrate widely. If you have one stock that's weak and you have others that are strong, you can't catch the strong ones for fear of catching too many of the weak ones. If you do that, then you can drive accidentally its weak stock toward extinction. And then the whole West Coast salmon fishery becomes like Swiss cheese with the holes getting bigger and bigger and bigger every year. First, the weakest stock will drop out and the next weakest stock, etc. So we are bound under law and also by the laws of biology, which are even less forgiving, to preserve and protect the weakest stock. And to do that, sometimes we have to pull the boats out of the water entirely, all the way from Monterey to the Oregon-Washington border. And that, in fact, happened in 2006 because we had a fish kill in the river in 2002. Those fish disappeared. They were missing in action. They didn't grow to adults. They didn't come back. There weren't enough to maintain a fishery. You have to have what's called a minimum spawner floor, how fisheries are managed for sustainability. We couldn't even meet the minimum spawner floor that year, so we had to pull all the boats out up and down the coast over almost 600 miles of coastline. No fishing, no salmon fishing at all. That one event cost us about $200 million in terms of net economic benefit. That has happened in smaller doses, but persistently year after year after year. This year, the Northern California salmon fishery is closed down just for the same reason, weak stocks in the climate. Last year, Northern California fishery was closed down. Same reason, weak stocks in the climate. There are a lot of reasons for that, but one big reason is the dams are doing continuing ongoing damage to our salmon runs by a number of mechanisms. One is creating warm water bathtubs full of nutrients that nourish toxic algae blooms above the dams in the reservoirs. Below the dams, they've created ideal conditions for sea shasta, Serrata nova shasta, which is a fish disease that kills young fish. In 2002, we had the adult fish come in, and they all were concentrated by lack of water and hot water in two smaller places. So we had an epidemic of adult fish uh, diseases, and that killed some 70,000 spawners then. It's been one mess after another, and the dams are primarily the driver of all those problems. There are other drivers, too. One is the lack of water coming back into the river from above. But certainly if the dams are removed, in our view and in the view of the scientists who've studied this very carefully, it will roughly double the size of these salmon runs and a lot of these weak stock management closures that we have to deal with on a yearly basis up and down the coast and benefit the whole West Coast fishing industry and all the ports that produce salmon or land salmon and are fishing dependent enormously compared to where we are today. Thanks for explaining that. So if we do remove the dams, which is planned, are we going to be in a better place than we were in the mid-80s? Well, in terms of water quality, much improved with the dams down. In terms of water quantity, the dams don't really store water, so the quantity is separate. But what we will have is better water quality for the water that we do have. There will still be droughts, no doubt. But with better water quality, fish are more likely to survive. The fish disease that we saw this year killing some 97% of the juveniles as they're trying to migrate out, that would be a thing of the past. Those ceratomyxa spores are a warm water parasite. 
if the water is cooler and moves out faster, it remains cooler in the spring as it would with the dams gone. A lot of that will be flushed out. A lot of that will not uh, be so big a problem as it is today. Remember that the dams were built without fish passage. We're talking about restoring access to some 420 stream miles of once fully occupied, fairly productive habitat. That's going to double the amount of habitat that the salmon have, particularly that's important for the spring run, which occupied the upper basin historically. Now there's only a remnant run, but the fall run too, and to some degree Coho will recolonize up there. Coho is ESA listed, Endangered Species Act listed. There's just no doubt that restoring a free-flowing river where fish can volitionally get back to their spawning and rearing habitat they historically occupied will be beneficial to the fishery, beneficial to the lower river and coastal communities that depend on that fishery, and beneficial to the whole regional economy. You were saying that there's less water. Is that because part of the Trinity is being diverted, or is, is there other stuff being diverted? The Trinity, for those who are not familiar with it, the Trinity River is the largest tributary to the Klamath. And originally, a lot of the Trinity River was basically confiscated by dams, and a great portion of that, almost 80%, was run through a tunnel, through a mountain range, down to Redding to connect into the California Central Valley Project. That was a disaster. It nearly ruined runs in the Trinity, Years of political battles finally resulted in a compromise, the Trinity Restoration Act, which put a lot of that water back into the Trinity. So now approximately half of the original flow of the Trinity is all back in the Trinity. And those salmon runs are are coming back. But it is a net loss of some of the lower river. There are issues with water allocation in the Climate Irrigation Project in the Upper Basin. Those issues still need to be worked out. I'm part of a working group to try to negotiate a new settlement. The second part of the original climate settlement had to deal with water, dealing with water over allocation and putting the whole basin back on a par with demand equal to supply. Right now, demand is much greater than supply, as it is in many places in California. The first and most important step is removal of the dams to restore access to the upper basin, improve water quality, restore the natural functions of gravel. Gravel needs to be recruited in the lower river. The dams block the gravel, which means there's no gravel for spawning and rearing for a lot of the river, some 50 miles below Gate Dam. It will provide flushing flows in the winter automatically because that's what happens in the winter. It rains a lot more than it does in the summer. That will flush out the parasites before the juvenile eggs hatch and they move out. So it's essentially restoring what is an engineered pipeline back to a free-flowing natural river system is going to be beneficial in a variety of different ways, not just for salmon, but for every other species and for the people who depend on that river for their livelihoods. That's the tribes, that's lower river, uh, and coastal people who depend on the fisheries. So it sounds like there's a lot at stake. This is the largest dam removal project, at least in U.S. history, possibly in the world to date. It's also one of the most aggressive watershed restoration programs to date. The Everglades might be 
a close first or second, but this is still a very, very uh, large basin. The Klamath Basin, for those people who are not familiar with the map, you should look at a map. It's huge. It's almost the size of New England. The Klamath Basin is larger than several U.S. states, even several states combined in New England. It spans a huge watershed. It's sparsely settled. It's not heavily industrialized. All the pieces of an intact ecosystem are still there. They're blocked by dams. There are various other issues, but they're all there and they're all repairable. So what we have is potentially a very important refuge for cold water salmon to weather climate change for the next 50 to 100 years. This may be interesting to people that the salmon in the Klamath are also the most warm water temperature resistant of all the salmon stocks up and down the coast. They evolved in a basin where there is drought, there is occasional warm water, where they evolved for that. So they're more hardy than salmon would be in coastal creeks elsewhere, up and down like the Rogue River and various other places. They're hardier because they've evolved for a variety of environments. All we have to do is give them a way to get past the dams and they'll take over in the upper basin. That's what all the experts are saying. How do the hatcheries play into the dam removal process and restoring runs? Hatcheries are right now required under the FERC license to mitigate for the loss of that 420 stream miles of lost habitat that are blocked by dams without fish passage. When those dams are removed and the salmon have access, those hatcheries will be phased down considerably. There may well be a gene bank conservation hatchery still left at Fall Creek, but the Iron Gate hatchery, which is one of the larger ones, will be eventually phased out. We'd all like to see is the return of wild fish colonizing the area that they evolved for without human intervention. Nature can make a better fish faster and more durable than any number of engineers or hatcheries. There will still be a hatchery in the Trinity River. There is a hatchery there. That will still be there. But again, the Trinity, that's mitigation for the loss of so much of their habitat and the loss of so much of their water. I think I read an article about fish not being released into the river from hatcheries. Is that accurate? Yeah. Here's the problem with hatchery. There are bad hatcheries and good hatcheries, but at their best and modern hatchery, they augment using the natal stocks, that is the, the genetics that are already there present in the river as their seed stock, and then they augment that biological diversity that's already there in the river. But that means you've got to put the fish in a river. They have to swim out as juveniles through that river. This year, the river is so toxic and so filled full of sea shasta spores that 97% of the juveniles, they estimate, died of this infestation. The water was too hot to allow them to get through unscathed, and so many of them died. The Department of Fish and Wildlife was not about to put its 1.1 million hatchery smolts in a dying river, in a poisoned river. And that was controversial in a lot of ways, but I think they made the right decision. They're holding them over until they can release them at a larger size 
later in the year when we're through the drought and the flushing rains are starting to come through. Is it optimal? No. Is a hatchery optimal? No. We want wild production, if possible. But where you must have a hatchery, it has to be managed so as not to do damage to the wild stock. And this is one one of the things that they're trying to do. They need to do it in a way so that it actually makes sense to release the hatchery fish in the river at appropriate times when they don't all die. It's a poor choice of many, even worse choices, what they had to do this year. But the alternative was that the river would be basically wiped out. And keep in mind that the fish that are in that hatchery now that will go out to sea and then come back three years later will be the first generation of fish to come back to a river with no dams. So it's very important that we keep that year class moving, growing and maturing and coming back. Got it. I'm wondering if farming practices and grazing on the upper Klamath is affecting the health of the river. And I guess I'm wondering if that's part of the restoration project. It's outside the restoration project because we can only spend money for dam removal, for dam removal and the mitigation that is resulting from impacts of dam removal. There is a great need for another deal, and that's what we had worked out in 2010. We tried to get it through Congress. It was called the Klamath Basin Restoration Agreement, KBRA. It would have been a 50-year restoration program for the upper basin. It would have capped irrigation at a reasonable level, but capped it. Right now, it's uncapped. The, The irrigation project is entitled to literally all the water in the river that it can use for irrigation under its 1906 water right. That doesn't comport with modern sustainable ecosystem management. There would have been money to improve water quality in a variety of ways. There are pollutants that go into this system, some of them from farming, some of them from the natural background, because this is a phosphate-rich volcanic soil in a lot of places, so there's phosphates in it. There would have been a way of renovating the irrigation project so that it could make more efficient use of the water that it had. And it would be guaranteed water that it now is promised only on paper, which would create a more stable irrigation system for the upper basin, which is money in the bank for farmers. If, if a farmer comes to a bank and says, well, I want to plant this crop, the first thing they ask is, do you have a water right? And if you say, well, it's subject to litigation every year, you're not going to get a bank loan. We were in such conflict, and there's constant litigation over water issues all up and down the basin. There's the culmination of almost 46 years of litigation, which resulted in the adjudication of a lot of water rights. That still isn't complete after 46 years, but it's winding up. There are all these issues in the upper basin having to do with water, and overuse of water is a big problem. There are also times like this year where we have deep drought. And there will be those times, regardless of what you do. In this drought, there is no irrigation water available. It has to be preserved and protected for the very basic minimum wildlife needs. So you said there's no irrigation water available this year to the farmers? For the first time in the history of the Klamath Irrigation Project, there is zero allocation for the farmers this year. In 2001, they lost about a third of their water because of close downs that were necessary to protect salmon in the river 
and suckers in the in the lake and for Clean Water Act needs. That was a disaster for them. This year, it's much worse. By the way, we have been working with the farmers, that is, fishing industry has been working with the farmers to secure disaster assistance. You can compensate lack of a year with money. The problem is you can't compensate for extinction of a species. You can't compensate for the total wipeout of the productivity of our industry. So we're in a kind of a different ball of wax, but we can work with and have worked and will continue working with the upper basin farmers who are losing their crops this year and who are facing severe economic uh, distress to try to get them some assistance to get them through for this year. And right now there's about $30 million available. That's only a share, a fraction of what is probably going to be the economic damages up there, but it's something. And it gives people some hope. And also people are doing what they can, unlike in 2001, where they'd never been cut off before. There's much more planning and thoughtfulness about what do we do in a drought over the last uh, 20 years. In some places, there's backup wells. They can take groundwater. In some places, they're not actually on the same irrigation system. It comes from Upper Klamath Lake. About 30,000 acres of the Klamath Irrigation Project are getting water from a different system from Gerber Reservoir, and so they're getting water this year. But there are a lot of people who have no water and can't plant crops, and those are the people that we will continue to work with Climate Water Users Association up there to make sure that there is some compensation for them. But that was one of the elements of the Climate Basin Restoration Agreement. Is It was the first time there had been a drought plan. Elements of that drought plan are still being implemented, but much more needs to be done. We need to figure out how to make the irrigation system sustainable so far as it should not draw more water in a drought than it draws during a wet year. And in the past, that's the way it was done. The drier the year, the more water they would draw because the fields were drier. There's less saturation in the the field. You can understand that. It makes a certain amount of sense. But what it does is it exacerbates and puts all the burden of a drought on the lower river salmon. And that depresses the salmon runs to the point where the Indian fisheries have to be curtailed or eliminated as they were this year. That's commercial and subsistence fisheries. Then the uh, coastal fisheries up and down the coast have to be curtailed or eliminated as they've been this year. It perpetuates the problem all up and down the coast. Do you have a bunch of young people helping? Uh, Are they interested in this? There are a lot of people who have rallied around the issue. There are new and fresh faces coming in on board, which I really enjoy. I've been doing this for a long time. It's good to see new people, particularly the tribes and the youth of the tribes have taken a leadership role in the Klamath, and that's really wonderful to see. Okay, and any more young lawyers helping out? There are a few. We've got a few. They're coming up the turnpike. And unlike, you know, in the past, the tribes themselves have some really good lawyers. Perfect. What advice do you have about restoring rivers? Just one thing, and that is the most important element in restoring a river is perseverance. You have to keep at it. You have to build a a sustainable movement. You have to move bureaucracies that sometimes take 10 or 20 years to move. But if you keep at it, like in the Klamath, you can achieve success. We're not quite there yet, but we're getting there. And People will say, oh, you're crazy. And I always like to quote 
a saying, those who say it cannot be done should stay out of the way of people actually doing it. George Bernard Shaw. That was Glenn Spain, Northwest Regional Director for the Pacific Coast Federation of Fishermen Association, PCFFA. You've been listening to West Coast Water Justice, produced by me, Natalie Kilmer. Subscribe and listen wherever you get your podcasts. The music is from the album Now That's What I Call Surf by Tony Bald, Adam Anigias, and Danny Snyder.